you found that, let's start with prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the treasures of your word. We pray now that as we consider that word together, you would be glad to work through your spirit by that word to change and shape our hearts. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, perhaps you will remember Andrew telling us that this week things were going to go badly wrong. Now, I take it he didn't mean that that was because I was going to be preaching. <laughs> Although I agree that is fairly terrible. I take it he meant that we were going to see the Israelites doing something terribly bad. You will remember how God last week, in last week's passage, gave Moses grand plans, the design for a tabernacle, so that he could dwell with his people. This was the big project of Exodus. He would rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, and then he would dwell with them in the promised land. He would be their God. They would be his people. The dwelling place of God would be with man. Well, as Moses was on the mountain hearing all these things, meanwhile, the Israelites remained at the foot of the mountain. He'd been up there some 40 days receiving the law, and they were growing impatient as they waited for him to return from God. And let me remind you about that God. This is the God they know, the God who has saved them out of Egypt with a mighty hand overthrowing Pharaoh's chariots in the sea. This is a God who has defeated their enemies. This is a God who has traveled with them as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And this is the God who still is feeding them day by day with miraculous bread from heaven. This is the God in whom they are very soon to lose faith. For chapter 32 and verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And Aaron does exactly as they ask. He says, Take off your rings of gold and bring them to me. And he, he uses them. He makes this golden calf. And they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then Aaron builds an altar before this golden calf. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, and it is. As tomorrow comes, they spend the day offering sacrifices and eating and drinking and playing. But what's going on here? How are we to make sense of this? First thing to remember is, do you remember Exodus chapter 20? when God gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, since then, he's given them the covenant code. They don't know that yet. But the Ten Commandments he spoke to all of Israel. They know it. And what they are busy doing here with the golden calf is breaking the first three of those commandments. What was the first commandment? 
I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Yet they've asked Aaron to make them gods to go before them. They're breaking the first commandment. What was the second commandment? Not to make any graven image or likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. And not to bow down to them nor serve them. Worshipping a golden calf image is the very definition of breaking the second commandment. And the third commandment. They shall not take the name of the Lord their God in vain. Yet that's just what Aaron has done. For having made the golden calf, he has proclaimed, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He has attached the Lord Yahweh, God's holy name, to an idol. But I suppose the real reason is not what commandments they're breaking, but why they would break them to start with. Well, our New Testament reading from Acts tells us that it is because in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They ceased trusting in the true and living God, their Savior. They abandoned their pilgrimage to the promised land and decided to go back to slavery in Egypt. And there is at least a strong hint in this text that sexual immorality had something to do with it. For when it says they rose up to play, it's a common euphemism for sexual immorality. It could even be that they are so fast to turn away from God because they want to break free from the God who said, you shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment. But whatever it is, they followed their hearts to make this new God, a God like the gods of Egypt, a God who would lead them from the freedom of salvation to the bondage of sin, where they would be free from God and free to sin as they like. And I want us to consider whether there have not been times in our own lives when we've been tempted to do something similar. Times when, if we're honest, the lures of the world seem so strong that our faith starts to, to falter or fade. Times when perhaps we realize we need to stop our greed or, or our anger or our lust, but we don't. Instead, we, we harden our hearts when somehow it seems that following Christ doesn't seem worth denying ourselves. We start to take those first steps towards walking back to the bondage of sin again. All the while kidding ourselves that the law doesn't know, the law doesn't see. But the Lord does know. Just as he knew exactly what the Israelites were doing at the bottom of the mountain long before Moses went down to see it. Verse 7, he sends Moses saying, Go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly from the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worship it and sacrifice to it. God knows. He sees and his wrath burns hot against them. He disowns his people. Notice he did not say to Moses, my people have done such and such. He says to Moses, your people, go down for your people who you brought up have sinned. And then having disowned them, he condemns them to destruction. Verse 9, I have seen this people and behold, 
it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And ultimately, that is what awaits those who continue to reject God. Not, not just those of Moses' day, but of our day as well. For if nothing changes, these faithless, these sexually immoral, these idolaters will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever, as Revelation also tells us. His wrath burns hot against them. Yet these people are not without help. For Moses, still with the Lord, now does something amazing, something wonderful. Moses steps forth and intercedes before the Lord for them. He stands in the breach before the anger of God and he pleads to please for God to have mercy. He pleads the glory of God. He pleads, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to cure them in the mountains? He pleads God's covenant promise. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and this land I promised I will give to their offspring to inherit forever. He pleads for them before the Lord, and the Lord God hears his pleas. Verse 14, he hears the intercession and he relents from destroying them. Moses, by standing before God in the breach on their behalf, has spared them utter destruction, and they had to do nothing. So far, so good, isn't it? But now Moses goes down the mountain. God sends him down with the two tablets of the law in his hands, and he will discover for himself the true horror of what's been going on. Verse 19. And as soon as he comes near the camp and sees the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burns hot. He throws the tablets of the law, the tablets out of his hands, and he breaks them at the foot of the mountain. He takes the calf they had made and he burns it with fire and grinds it to powder and scatters it on the water and makes the people of Israel drink it. What are we to make of this? While he was up on the mountain, before he saw the terribleness of what had happened, he interceded for the people. But now face to face with the horrors of what has really happened, his wrath too burns in horror against them. He smashes those tablets of the law. It's a picture of the covenant, the covenant between God and man, now utterly broken into pieces. And he forces them to drink the idol, taking their full share of the evil that they have done. And then to add evil upon evil, their leader Aaron totally fails to intercede for them. Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do that you brought such a great evil upon them? But instead of pleading repentance and mercy, Aaron heaps sin upon sin. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, he says, and he says what had happened. But then he adds, so I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's a ridiculous story, isn't it? 
seems to be an attempt by Aaron to blame God for what's happened. It's as if he's implying, well, it must be God made the calf for us, and it just trotted out on its own. It is a very great blasphemy to try to blame God for our own sins. It doesn't deceive Moses, and it certainly does not deceive God. God who inevitably is soon to respond to their unrepentant sin with judgment. He commands the sons of Levi to serve him by going about amongst the people and slaying those who had turned aside. Three thousand fall that day. And when the next day comes, Moses seeks once more to intercede before the Lord. He tries to atone for their evil before they are totally consumed. He goes up to the Lord and he does what Aaron totally failed to do. He confesses their sins before the Lord. He says, verse 31, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And he pleads for their forgiveness. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And he offers his own life as atonement. Forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But Moses simply cannot fully atone for such a great evil of this people. His offer of his life is not accepted, and God visits their sin on their own heads, sending a plague amongst them, verse 35, because of the calf that they had made. This is pretty bad, isn't it? But worse is yet to come. It's kind of like after a man has been unfaithful to his wife. It does not just lead to well-deserved, furious anger. It also has long-term consequences for the relationship. The relationship is so seriously destroyed that even Jesus allows divorce in such a case. And the same is true here. The people of Israel have been so unfaithful to their God, they are not just to face his fierce anger, but long-term consequences. And I will give you three. The first of them is disappointment. God tells them he will no longer go up with them. Yes, they can go up to the land of milk and honey, but he will not go with them. He will not be their God. They will not be his people. The dwelling place of God will not be with man. No, not anymore, not now. As verse, chapter 33 and verse 3 says, Go up to a land flowing with milk of honey, milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. That big Exodus project looks like it's going to end in disappointment, doesn't it? And with disappointment comes difficulty. God now cannot go up among them. If he did, they would be destroyed. Verse 5, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Disastrous. No wonder they mourned. Disappointment, difficulty, and the third consequence, distance. God will now be distant from the people. Moses will still meet with God, but he's going to have to do it far away from the people. Verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. 
Now, this isn't the tabernacle. This is another smaller tent of meeting. But the important thing here is that it has to be pitched far off from the camp so that when God meets with Moses, the people aren't destroyed. But although the Lord remains close to Moses and speaks to him face to face like a friend, the Lord is now cut off from his people by their sin. Disappointment, difficulty, and distance. A disastrous episode for the Israelites indeed. A covenant broken as quickly as it is made. And let me tell you, it will not be the last time. For although God in his great mercy will finally mercifully relent, he will make another new covenant with them to go up with them. But they will break that as well. And they will do it again and again and again until ultimately they are driven right out of that promised land because of their many sins. But how about for us? What are we today to make of all this? The scripture tells us that these things were written as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So in what way are these things examples to us? Well, I wonder who you identify with in this story. I quite like Moses. He's clearly the hero, isn't he? He keeps the faith. He intercedes before God. He speaks to God face to face. It would be nice to be like him, wouldn't it? But I think really we should identify more with the people, the people who, like us, can so easily turn away from God to idolatry and immorality, the ones who can hear today about God's gracious covenant and so easily turn to the world tomorrow. See these people of old. See how quickly they fell away from God, how easily it happened, and be very careful not to follow them. Learn from their mistakes. As Scripture says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do not desire evil like they did. Yet it may also be that many of us know only too well how easy that fall can be. We know that we ourselves have turned from God's ways. We know perhaps we've turned in our hearts to another master. Perhaps we've bowed down to gods of gold or, or ringgits. Although our Lord clearly tells us that a man cannot serve God and money. Perhaps we've chosen to ignore and neglect our parents. Or the way of lies and bribes and cheating rather than denying ourselves and following him. It may be that if we are honest with ourselves, some of us are feeling like the Israelites. We're feeling disappointment and difficulty and distance. We're feeling, how can I possibly hope to dwell with God forever if he would consume me in a moment? Well, if that is us, then actually we don't just need a warning not to desire evil like they did. We also need someone to intercede for us like Moses did for them. Someone to stand in the breach to save us from the evil we have committed. Someone like Moses, only greater. Someone who can make full atonement for our sins. And in God's grace, 
This is exactly what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads before the Father, not just God's glory in his covenant, but his own blood for our forgiveness. He pleads his death to atone for all our sins. He pleads that he was blotted out of the book of life so that sinners like us could live. He pleads that God visited upon him our sin so that we should not have to suffer the judgment. And he ever lives to intercede for us fully and forever. In him there is no more disappointment, difficulty, or distance. Our dear sisters and brothers, in a few minutes, we will gather together around the Lord's table, and he will remind us there of these very things. As he speaks to us by the sacrament of his body given in our place on the cross, of how his blood was poured out for us and for many for the forgiveness of our sins, of his new covenant that guarantees salvation to all who trust in him. So, dear brothers and sisters, as you come, don't come like Aaron, hiding and excusing our, your sins, but let us come, confessing our sins, that we might find in him the wonderful forgiveness that he came to bring. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we thank you for the treasures of your word and particularly for this word by which you warn us against desiring evil. We pray you would work by your spirit in our hearts to turn our hearts firmly to you, that you would grant us true repentance and the desire to walk in your ways and keep your commandments. Pray, Father, also that you would give us the strength to confess our sins, that we might find forgiveness in your Son. Most of all, Father, we thank you for that Son. We thank you that he stood in the breach for us, that his blood was shed to save us and atone for our sins, and that he ever lives now to plead before you for our forgiveness. Pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would help us both to rejoice and to trust in him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.